Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Good morning, Sojourn. It is great to be able to gather with you uh, both online and in person. Uh, Yes, you heard that right, in person. We are attempting to do a hybrid gathering at the Oregon Stamp Society, which is the building that we use on Northeast 33rd Avenue. And so when you are ready, we understand if you're not, but when you are at that place, we're gathering uh, at the exact same time that we are online at 10 a.m. Everything is sanitized before and after each gathering. The chairs are spaced out six plus feet, and we will group you by family units. And then there's plenty of hand sanitizer and masks available. Um, If you're new to joining us, my name is Matt Boyd, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church. Uh, Go ahead and take a second, find the chat bar, and just say hello. Uh, Type where it is that you are joining uh, from this morning. Uh, We want to get to a place where we still have to do this kind of hybrid of online that we can interact with one another. Uh, It's not quite the same as being in person and having that fellowship of a handshake and a hug and a cup of coffee together, but at least we can interact in some level, uh, even as we do online gatherings. And although online is not the most conducive way, it's uh, honestly a way that I don't prefer at all, but it's a way that we've kind of leaned into or maybe even limped into uh, as a church. We want to do our part to still cultivate community in the best way possible. And so a couple of things that we've been doing every Wednesday during the month of January, we've had midweek prayer at noon and that's been on zoom just because we don't have our own facility and so it's a very uh, obviously social distance and a safe way to join we haven't decided yet if we're going to do that in february but um hopefully on a more ongoing basis we'll be praying together as a church uh, on behalf of our city and our nation and our world uh, together throughout the months of 2021 and then we also have our midweek group which we call our gospel community that also meets uh, on zoom at 7 p.m on Wednesday nights, as uh, you will learn in the announcements from Andrea, that we are uh, kind of finishing up the book Kingdom First in the next couple of weeks. So I'm not 100% sure what the the next thing is going to look like, but it'd be a great time to jump in and join in with our gospel community. If you've been curious what that's about, or if you're just longing for community, it'd be a great time to join us for that. Go ahead and open your Bible or open the app on your phone and find the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, if you're new to the Bible, uh, where we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. I think we're in about week 12. Of course, we took a break for the holidays, and now this is our second or third week picking it back up. And we're actually starting chapter 6 this week. So find the book of Matthew, find chapter 6, and we will be uh, looking at the first four verses in that chapter. Now, I think we'd be lying to ourselves if we didn't recognize that the Sermon on the Mount is simultaneously a wonderful sermon, uh, best sermon ever preached by Jesus himself, but it's at the same time, it's equally painful. Let me explain that. It's wonderful because it dismounts this idea of the religious leaders and kind of attaining to the religious wall and the, their way of doing things. And it also, it, it kind of flies in the face of the way the world does things. And we look at both those things, it just simply doesn't work. And instead, we look at this Jesus ethic, which does work. And so it provides us with this countercultural kingdom, this ethic that we are to long for as the people of God, and that, that Jesus is showing us that this is how you are to go and live now as citizens of my kingdom. It's painful because what it does, if you've been paying attention, it exposes the state of our heart. 
And we must remember that the Sermon on the Mount is addressed primarily to believers. So it's, it's not, I think we read these passages, it's easy to go, yeah, look at the world, look what they're doing and what they're not doing. But this is actually addressed to the church. I can't think of a better passage than what the capital C church needs for 2021 after everything that's happened in the last year than the Sermon on the Mount. I think every single church should be studying through the Sermon on the Mount right now to see how it's going to transform us um, as the church of Jesus. And so we see that Jesus' teaching, it flies in the face of doing the bare minimum. That's oftentimes what we find ourselves doing. Just, you know, where's that line? I'll try not to cross it. Um, let me be halfway committed. And Jesus says, no, this, this is not what you are to do. You are to live this way as citizens of my kingdom, as ones who are called out, as ones who, who I have set apart for myself and then have sent out back into the world. And so what we see is the Sermon on the Mount, what it does is it cuts really deep to our souls, even in our best moment. Now, why is it it does that? Why those, un, those painful parts? Because it reveals the wickedness that exists in our hearts. And apart from the Spirit of God working our lives, we can't ever actually live out this, this Jesus ethic that we've been looking at. So if you find yourself frustrated with some of these things, that's a very normal emotion. That's a very normal response. And the reason is, apart from Jesus working in and through your life, there's no way to live this way. There's no way to actually live this out and accomplish it on any level. And so if you're joining us and you're not a Christian at all, that really the expectation is not that you would live up to these things. It's for those of us who say, no, I am a Christian. But then even we might say, man, I fall short of this all the time. It's because we oftentimes we operate in our own flesh. We operate by our own spirit. Instead, we need to pray and seek the Lord that his spirit would work on our behalf. And with, through the power of the Holy Spirit working on us, that we're able to actually live out this ethic that Jesus has given us. And while painful at times, the Sermon on the Mount has provided us an opportunity even as Christ followers, to open up our hearts and allow God to do a deep examination of them, week in and week out. This isn't a bad thing. This, this isn't meant to make you feel bad. I think sometimes people think, man, this is just meant, meant to make me feel bad. It's not meant for that. This is actually a really good thing to examine our hearts, to examine our lives, to examine the way that it is that we are living. And this is the way that God is shaping and molding your heart. Because the reality is that none of us have ever arrived. This process, this big word that we call sanctification, from the time you become a Christian until the, the time you die and go to be with Jesus in heaven, that it's an ongoing process of your sanctification that you still need the gospel. We still need these things because we continuously return to our old way of life that Jesus is continuing to shape us and mold us. You know, I think about a thing of, of Play-Doh that my kids will play with, and they can shape it, mold it, and and turn into whatever it is they want it to do. And so we're, we are that, and the Bible calls us clay, but we're kind of like that Play-Doh. And that as we study the Sermon on the Mount, I feel like Jesus is shaping us and into the people he wants us to be in 2021 as a church and beyond. This is one of the reasons as a church that we believe in the authority of Scripture in our lives. This is why we value opening the Bible week in and week out. It's like a spiritual open heart surgery every single week, which we need it. Because regardless if you're watching us online or if you're at the Oregon Stamp Society with us, you, you walk out the door, you go down the steps, and you likely forget half of what you just heard. And we end up going on living our own way. Or you close your laptop, and maybe you automatically get into an argument with your spouse or with your children, and, and, and maybe you cross into sin, and you totally forget some of the things that we've been looking at. So every week we need this spiritual open heart surgery and say, God, please come and inspect my heart and our heart and and mold us and shape us into the type of people that you want us to be. People who are citizens of your kingdom, not our little kingdoms. Many churches are getting away from opening the Bible on a weekly basis. 
Many of them just have what they, you know, more of like a TED talk. And let me just give you some good ideas and some things that I came up with. And many of my peers even give me a hard time for, for being committed to expositional preaching. But I think that is one of the strongest components of the church. You know, I think sometimes in our modern age, we think, man, if we just can meet at a cool venue or if we just do things that look like the world, that will attract the world. But I think it's quite the opposite. You know, I think the things the church has been doing for over 2,000 years, and I believe that opening the Word of God and doing expositional preaching is one of those things. And so it's, it's one of those things that as long as I'm in leadership at this church, that we will value opening God's Word week in and week out because that is where the power lies. That God has actually communicated it to us. Have you ever thought about that? We have this Bible, which is made up of numerous books, but these books are God-inspired. Yes, he, he allowed human men um, to, to author these books, but that they're God-inspired. So God actually wrote us a book. God gave us a manuscript, a letter, and said, here, go and live by this. And so for that reason, week in and week out, we believe in opening God's Word. We believe in the authority of Scripture, and we think about interpretation. You know, I think about the Sermon on the Mount, that we are called to live a countercultural lifestyle, that we are called to be salt and light. And I see so many of my peers who are kind of caving and, and giving in and, and different matters of interpretation. I say, man, when we have a hermeneutic, it has to be a Jesus hermeneutic. It can't be a Matt hermeneutic. It can't be a, a, even a sojourn hermeneutic. It has to be a Jesus hermeneutic, which interprets how it is that we are to live as Christ followers. We might get away with uh, an annual checkup to the doctor for our physical or, you know, to for a physician, which if you're me every three to five years when uh, Andrea bugs me enough that I finally give in and, and, and go. But we might get away with an annual checkup to our doctor, but we need a weekly checkup on our spiritual health. And that's one of the reasons that we believe in the gathering of believers. Sure, we can go out throughout our week and we believe that we are supposed to be sent out and that it's not all about just Sunday, but we also believe in Sunday. And part of that is we need it for our own spiritual health. We need to check in with God. We need to check in with one another and spur one another on in the ways that Jesus has described for us over the last several weeks of how it is that we are to live as those that he has called out. And so as we start the second chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is going to say next, is it's really an explanation for us of something he said earlier in chapter five when he said, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. Now, if you know anything about the Pharisees, they knew the law. The Pharisees knew how to follow the law. They also knew kind of how the way to kind of cut the law and get around the law. But he says that our, our righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. And Jesus has given us an example. He's gone through the, the last six statements where he said that the Pharisees, or modern language for, for us would be, uh, that he said that they're righteousness, but I say this is actually righteousness. And so what Jesus has shown us, this is not a surface level or what you do on the outside. It's not just about getting the right answers. It's not about just looking like you have your act together. It's not just looking like you can follow these things. But he says it's actually a matter of what's going on in your heart. Not a matter of what's going on up here. Not a matter of what you're even saying out here. Not even a matter of what I can see you doing, but what's actually happening in your heart when you are following through on these things. Even when some, like the Pharisees, externally keep the law and do these things, there are often things in their heart which show in actuality they aren't obeying the law. They might look that way to man, but God sees deeper than that. God actually sees our heart and he sees the motivation of our hearts. And so that's when we pray. We pray that God would not only change us externally, we pray that God would not only give us knowledge when we come together and look at his word, but that God would actually change our hearts, that the, the word of God would penetrate our hearts and penetrate our lives and that his spirit would change us from the inside out, not just from the outside. 
And so over the next three weeks, as we start the second chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter six, we're going to cover three things required for one practicing the ways of Jesus. You know, that's really kind of modern language of, of obeying the law, practicing the ways that Jesus presented for us. And so the, the first three things we're going to look at are the next three weeks is first we're going to look at giving to the poor. And that's really what we're going to focus on this week. Next week, we'll focus on praying. And then the third week, we'll focus on fasting. And these are three things that are righteous responses. These are three things that you must do as a Christ follower. But even in doing them, there is this heart check that must take place to ensure that your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and that they are not done in a hypocritical manner. It's not just doing them, not just checking off this list. You know, I think about my, my Apple Watch, which my wife uh, and I like to compete now. We have these rings. If you have an Apple Watch, you know what I'm talking about? They have these rings on how much you exercise and how many calories you lose and how many minutes you stand. And so sometimes she'll catch me kind of doing this or, or kind of doing jumping jacks towards the end of the evening because I want to beat her because we're in this competition together. And so um, in some ways I'm doing it in a hypocritical manner. It's not that I'm, I'm actually been that physical and that, that active, but I'm just trying to get that in and, and cheat it in, in a way. And so it's the same way that this is pointing to this, that there might be some of those things that you go, look what I did. I gave to the poor and I prayed and I, and I did these things, but they can still be done in a very hypocritical manner, even if to everyone else they look like you were doing them with a pure heart. And so Jesus now is going to continue for us on teaching on righteousness and he begins literally by saying, beware of doing your righteousness before men. Now, the word used for righteous in the original language is the same word that Jesus used back in chapter 5 in both verse 6 and verse 20. Although the word for righteousness is the same word, the emphasis has actually shifted. And that's important for us to pay attention to it. Because at one point it was talking about being kind of salt and light and, and living out your righteousness that way. So it was done in a sense, it sounds like for others to see. But in this case, it's, it's kind of looking at it from a different angle. And previously, righteous related to kindness and, and purity, honesty, and love. And now it concerns such practices as almsgiving, as praying, and as fasting. And so what we're going to see is Jesus comes in. He moves from a Christian's moral righteousness to the, his religious righteousness. But both in spheres of righteousness, Jesus issues his insistent call to his followers to be different. So from both angles, it's still the same that you are to be called out. You are to be different than the world. And in Matthew 5, he teaches that our righteousness must be greater than that of the Pharisees because they obeyed the letter of the law. The Pharisees knew what it meant to obey, but their obedience did not include their heart. And for it to be true obedience, it must include your heart. And so even when we talk about being generous at sojourn, I say, look, if you're, if you're giving begrudgingly, don't give. We don't, we don't need your money. God calls us to be generous as his followers, but don't give in a begrudgingly way. Do it with a glad and generous heart. And then we also that, that when he tells us to be greater in the Pharisees, he also means greater in the form of our love. And, and he says, and greater than that of the pagans, because the pagans love each other, but our love must include our, our love for our enemies as well, just as we looked at last week. And now in Matthew 6, Jesus is going to come in, and he's going to be... Um, teaching us regarding the religious righteousness, and he draws two, uh, two contrasts for us. He takes the, the religious leaders of the Pharisees first, and he says, you must not be like the hypocrites. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, my true followers, do not be like those hypocrites over there. He then moves on to the mechanical formulas of the heathen and says, do not be like them either. 
And again, what we see here is that Christians are to be different both from the Pharisees and the pagans. We're to be different from the religious and the irreligious. We're to be different as the church from the world. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll get into our actual text this morning. Once again, it's Matthew 6, where we look at the first four verses. Let me pray for us. God, as we start our gathering this morning and dive into your word, I ask that you would inspect our hearts. I love that imagery of it being like open heart surgery for our spiritual lives. And God, that each of us would take this time out of our lives, that we wouldn't be distracted by Facebook or any other app or anything on our phone or, or our computers if we're tuning in on the internet this morning, God. For at the Oregon Stamp Society, that we wouldn't be distracted by anything that's in the room or cars driving by. But God, that you would inspect our hearts. God, specifically as we look this morning at, at how we practice our righteousness before others and that our hearts would be pure and motivation would be to practice it before you and that it's for your glory alone, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's look at uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you get to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so what we're going to see in these four verses is one principle that holds the three sections together. And that principle is that Jesus warns us against using acts of righteousness for our validation from other people, from, from in a sense of finding our identity in those things. And so, in other words, saying don't do even good things so that other people will see value in you. Don't do those so that, that men will praise you. Because here's the reality. They'll never be able to fill that void in your life. They'll never be able to fully fill that cup. Now, not many of us stop to consider this warning in our hearts. We're aware, aware of things like don't do drugs, don't have sex outside of marriage, don't abuse alcohol. But many times we don't think about this warning of our hearts and what's behind all of those things that we're externally obeying or disobeying. These are kind of, once again, the word says beware. So it's like this sign. I think about... Um, a roadblock or a sign that's warning us of, of a cliff that's coming up. And it's, it's warning us for a reason. We've had some beautiful winter days here in Portland and my family, regardless if they're beautiful or not, we love to get out and hike. And so last weekend we went to Waclila Falls, one of our favorite waterfalls in the, uh, the gorge, because it's a short hike. But if you've been on that hike, then you get to see water the entire time. I mean, from your first step, you just see water the whole way. And of course you eventually zigzag back and forth and you climb, uh, I think you climb five to 700 feet. So it's not a huge climb, but with three you know, young children, it's, it's uh, still some work that you gotta do, but it's still a big cliff that you potentially fall down. So there's parts, especially after all the rain we had in the first part of January, that some of the trails were washed out and you have to walk over these essentially mudslides that if you slip, you might fall 500 feet and who knows what would happen to you on that fall. And so there's times I have to tell my three run buxious little boys like, Guys, listen, stop. There's a landslide right here. We've got to go over these rocks. And there's sometimes I have to grab their hand even and almost like just force them over and, and launch them over something. And so it's, it's the same way with these warning signs. But they're there for a reason. I mean, if I don't tell my children that, they're likely to trip and fall or slide on that mud and just go flying down that hill to potentially their death. And so it's the same way these warning signs are for us 
to say, look, it's good that you're doing these things, but there's a warning here in how it is that you're doing it. Because you might think you've got it all together and you're acting and you're doing all of this stuff. But this is really, this is where you get kind of the difference between religion and irreligion. You know, I, I, you think people, man, they, the, the idea of earning your salvation. It's like, well, I didn't do these things. I did all the things the Bible said, but it's, it's your heart. What was the motive of your heart? Was it sincere? Was it, was it genuine? Or was it just so, man, I'm, I'm hoping I get my get out of hell free card and I'm going to go to heaven when I die. But it's not based on your righteousness. And he says, beware of how it is that you're doing these things. Are you doing it for the praise of man or are you doing it for the praise of God? Look back at verse 2. It says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, Jesus obviously expected his disciples to be generous givers. Let me say that again. Jesus expects us, his disciples, to be generous givers. That's one reason we say we want to be generous at Sojourn. It's not so we can fill our bank account. It's so that we can help other people and because it's the expectation of Jesus. And, you know, our church is all about Jesus and the gospel. But generosity is not enough. Okay, That's one thing we really focus on 2020 is let's be generous. We know people are in needs more than ever. Let's be very generous. But generosity is not enough. Jesus is concerned throughout the Sermon on the Mount with the motivation of the generosity with the hidden thoughts of the heart. See, Jesus criticized the religious leaders, most notably the Pharisees, for a particular form of hypocrisy. They're doing the right things, but for the wrong reason. And so even with giving, you can be doing the right thing. You can be giving to our Christmas missions offering, or you can be giving to uh, the help of the blanket driver. You can be giving just to our regular tithes and offering, but it's still possible to do that, which is a good and right thing, but you might still be doing it for the wrong reason. Somebody might say, man, I'm going to give to Sojourn Church because I think that God will give me uh, kind of a free pass and it's okay that that I sin a little bit and I do some of these things knowingly because I'm giving to the church. Surely he'll forgive me for that. And that's not how it works. Now, to give to the needy was one of the pillars of of piety of the day. But the religious leaders, what they were doing is they were giving to the needy to be praised by others. It was in a sense to say, look, I'm giving to to the poor in our community. Now, don't you want to praise me for doing that? And the tragic irony here is that by doing that, by by wanting the praise and desiring the praise of the community, Jesus is essentially saying, you've already received your reward. You receive your reward from the public and the professional acclaim. And that's all the reward that you will ever receive is that reward that you sought out. And it's almost like the immediacy is what they sought out rather than what it could be in the future. And, And Jesus says, such fleeting human adulation precludes satisfaction of the deep longing of someone's heart. Because Jesus can see where our motivations really come from. And, and that, that is many people's motivation why they do it. I think this is one reason. Please don't mishear me in this and give me grace even saying the statement because we're on an online gathering. We don't have time to sit up for coffee and talk about this. I would love to do that if we need to. But I think in Portland, one reason we have so many nonprofits and the reason as a whole our city does so much good, I think in part it is because that's filling this void. And I'm not questioning everyone's motivations. I think there's some really good motivations. It, it falls under the idea we talked about a couple weeks ago of common grace. But I also think there's a part of it, too, that's kind of like, you know, if there is a greater being, a spiritual being, and they may not have a name for it, or, or God in that case, you know, by doing these good things, then I'm okay. It, it's In a sense, it's this moralism that we go, man, I'm, I'm all right. You know, I'm volunteering at food pantries and I'm doing all these other things in the city and I'm helping people. So I'm, I'm okay, right? I'm, I'm a good person. But the Bible would actually squash that idea and say, what's the motivation of the heart, first off? But then also that apart from Jesus Christ, you can't be good in and of yourself. 
And so Jesus was reminding them and us that serving the poor is about giving glory to God and not receiving the glory from others. How deeply most of us, there's part of us, at least me, maybe I'm alone in this, that desires that praise from others. It's a constant struggle for a lot of us. I'm an Enneagram 3, and so we, we enjoy the praise. We enjoy people saying you did a good job. We enjoy people knowing the things that we do. And even if we do actually desire to glorify God, we also oftentimes want the praise of others. I was on a call this week with about 50 other pastors throughout our city. And there was a story that was highlighted of another church planter in our city. And um, they were, he was kind of sharing his story. Well, I had made a significant connection. I'm a connector. If you know me, I'm a connector. I made a significant connection for this other church planter. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, he's going to mention my name. So this is great. And I wasn't mentioned at all. And so if I'm honest, it kind of bothered me. I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, man, I opened that door for you. It was an opportunity that I had that I passed up and, and handed off and opened this door for somebody else. And it's funny because I was actually preparing this message at the very same moment. I'd actually prepared this section already. I said, this is the example that I need to give. Because I had to ask myself in that moment, did I do that? Did I make that connection for the praise of God or for the praise of man? And in that moment, honestly, I was seeking the praise of man. And I had to repent and say, God, I, need, I, need, I did it for you. I don't need the praise of man. I did it for you. Now, this isn't implying that, that you don't care about things and you're just a jerk altogether about stuff. But it's the, the point is that we don't find our worth. We don't find our value. We don't find our identity in the approval of others. Because that is a really, really hard place to be. Once again, other people can't ever fill that void. Now, why would God care about the motives of our heart? You know, if God needs us, which he doesn't actually need us, but if God's called us to be generous, and if God's called us to pray, and God's called us to fast, and God's called us to do these things, why does he care about the motivation of our heart? As long as I'm following through and doing these things, isn't that good enough? Well, my friend and fellow pastor, Matt Blackwell, helps provide three reasons why God cares about the motivations of our heart. The first reason is it ends up being idolatry and it's self-motivation desire. Think about it. What about when someone gets that recognition at work and you did the majority of the work, but somehow the presentation comes along and they're the one that gets all the credit for it. What about when you help somebody move and you think, man, that, was, that took up my weekend. I gave away my entire Saturday to help you move into your new house. And they're tagging everyone on Facebook and somehow they don't tag you. Maybe it's an honest mistake, but they don't tag you on Facebook. And you think, man, what? I let them use my truck. I was there from the time they started. I was the last one to leave and I don't get any credit for this. What about when Sojourn isn't mentioned alongside other churches in the city when we're participating in some kind of outreach event and, and we're doing our part or even in our neighborhood, but maybe another church gets mentioned. What, what about Sojourn? The second reason that God cares about the motives of our heart is hypocrisy. What about when our minds constantly wonder what others think of our social media posts, or in my case, our, my sermons, or, or something else? We put ourselves out there. What ends up happening is we end up acting in ways and saying things and serving in ways that other people will approve us even when it's not right, which is itself hypocrisy. And the third reason that Jesus, or uh, that God cares about the motivation of our hearts is it limits our rewards for giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. If you live for the approval of other people, then that may be all you get according to this passage. What this verse actually teaches us in other parts of Scripture, there's actually rewards in the next life. Not only do we get the reward of heaven, which, I mean, if you get just that, like, man, that's going to be awesome. I don't think any of us can imagine what it's going to be like. But it actually tells us we get rewards in the next life that we're then able to give to, to, to Jesus. And so if you are seeking just the praise of man here, then that may be all you get according to this passage. So I think we have to live with this tension that there's things that we'll do 
purely out of the motivation of our heart, good things that we may never get to mention, that we may never receive that earthly reward, but you will receive it in the next life. Charles Spurgeon says, you cannot expect to be paid twice. If therefore you take your reward in the applause of men who give you a high character for generosity, you cannot expect to have any reward from God. And so we should have our focus on the acceptance of God for what we give. And we should give little to no thought on what man may say concerning our giving. Not that we don't care about accountability and motivation on those types of things, but that you're not doing it for the praise of man. You're not going to think about the offering plate being passed to the kid. You're not going, look how much I'm sticking in the plate this morning, or look how big my check is. But we do it in such a way that we're not doing it for the praise of man. We're doing it for the glory of God. So how then do we approach giving to those in need from this text? Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will also reward you. So three things we see here. He says, Give generously, give quietly, and give with God's reward in mind. So giving generously. Jesus assumes that giving to those be part of the normal, natural, or maybe supernatural response of a citizen of his kingdom. It doesn't say if you give. I think sometimes we think some of these things are optional. It doesn't say if you give. It says, but when you give to the poor. So the assumption is that we will be giving as kingdom citizens to the poor. Now, we all have these things, what I call whataboutisms, on how our money is going to be used, potentially wrongfully. We see someone asking in front of new seasons for something, and, and automatically we have these whataboutisms fill our head. But what if they spend it on booze, or what if they spend it on drugs, or how are they going to use this money? But this is what I've found in my own life, just to be transparent. Oftentimes, that might be a legitimate concern, but instead of wrestling through that and, and really motivating me to be active, I end up becoming passive and end up not doing anything at all. I just continue walking or continue driving or hop on my bike. Man, what if they use this and then you know I get a few logs down the street and I just totally forget that there was even that wrestling in my mind at all. And instead, what we should be doing, we should be wrestling through to activism. Actually, okay, yeah, sure, be careful. And maybe you provide a meal instead of cash. And maybe you do the same, but actually do something when your heart is prompted to respond to help somebody in need. We must not forget. I mean, think about our city of all cities in the country. We have people sleeping under bridges. We have people sleeping on the streets of our neighborhood. And these people are image bearers of the divine. But they're made in the image of God. And so even when we help them, we talked about this on Wednesday night in our gospel community, we help them as fellow humanity, as fellow humankind. We don't help them as someone who's above them and over them, but as someone who's equal to them. It just happens to be that their address is very different. It just happens to be that they're sleeping under a bridge and uh, hopefully even in a tent. And so even when we do that, we have to check the motivation of our heart. But we see that we are called to give to those in need. And I think giving to the poor should be costly in some manner. That's why we see this idea of being generous. What does it look like to be generous? I think being generous, part of that is being sacrificial and giving up some of your own things. In order to really love for those in need, in some ways you may have to cut life. Now this isn't a religious rule, and I'm not prescribing what it is you are to do, but maybe you have to cut out cable, or maybe you have to go with a lesser internet plan, or, or maybe you skip that phone upgrade, or, or maybe you do without certain things so that you can be generous and be freed up from your finances in order to help those in need. Now, I am not sure that all of our giving to the poor will be right. We're not sure if they might use it on booze. We're not sure if they might use it on drugs. 
We're not sure they might just use it on something else that in our minds would be blowing the money. But here's what I am sure of, that if I'm not giving to the poor, that will be wrong. And so by not giving it all to those in need, that in actuality is what's wrong. We're not responsible for how they how they end up using what we would give to them. Yes, we want to be use wisdom, we want to use caution, but we are responsible for responding to this passion and the passions that we are to give to those in need. The second thing is give quietly. You know, I, I think about a funny story happening between your left hand and your right hand. You know, I think about even with the offering plate being passed, but I can think your 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 left hand is say, saying like, "Hey, let me let me see what what you're doing over the right hand." You know, maybe you're pulling out your wallet or you're writing a check or I, I don't know, nobody uses checks anymore, but um, you're you're putting your chip in your credit card and your left hand. Oh, let me see, let me see. Your right hand's like, "No, no, no, you can't do this." I can imagine like a funny little kid show about this. But I mean, you know, think about this. Imagine trying to applaud with one hand. You know, my hands are kind of big, so I can do that, but some of you can't even do that. You know, you can kind of applaud. And so what, what this means about not letting your left hand and your right hand know what, what you're giving, it doesn't let you, these whataboutisms hinder you. In other words, it doesn't kind of say, well, wait a minute here. No, let's not do this. It goes, man, this is what we're called to do, so we're going to follow through and we're going to do this. Now, there's not much difficulty in grasping this concept between the left hand and the right hand. Now, not only are we not to tell other people about Christian giving, there's a sense in which we are not even to tell ourselves what it is that we are doing. In other words, we're not to go, I think about tax returns. We're in tax season right now. And we still live in a country, and this might be changing at some point, we still live in a country where by giving to a nonprofit, and if you're tuning in from elsewhere, you can give to Sojourn. We're a nonprofit, and you will get that tax write-off in a year. But I think sometimes we can look at it and go, man, look how much money I gave this year. I mean, imagine if you got your tax return this year, and you know you got however much write-off because you gave to, to Sojourn or some other nonprofits, and you start texting people, man, I gave this much money away. And so there's some ways that even we'll, that's not, that should never be the motivation of our heart. Even for our taxes, that shouldn't be why we do it. That's like icing on the cake or maybe the cherry on top. It's just an extra benefit, but that we're not to do it so that we practice it in front of others. We're not to do it so that we can conversation go, well, know how much I spent last year? You know how much I gave to the church last year? And honestly, I find myself at times doing that. I might get frustrated with people who go, man, they're not being generous. They're not giving. Do you know how much we could do if we had all the money that we backed that, that we gave? Well, that shows that moment, the motivation of my heart has turned to a, a wrong motivation. That's not why we give. And the third is give for reward. Here's the reality. We're all chasing rewards in life. And really, in many, in all areas of life, right? In marriage, you're chasing the reward of a, a healthy marriage, a healthy relationship. In your job, you're chasing the reward of probably promotions and a better career and a fulfilling career. Some of us chase the reward of the praise from our boss and some of us chase the reward of a likes on Facebook or some medal or some plaque that we can hang up on the wall or a, an old window with a nice wreath or something that we accomplish. But the reward of faith is chasing the reward that you cannot see. It's a reward that in this side of heaven you will never see. But you know that on that side, if Scripture is true, that we will have rewards that we can lay before the feet of our Savior, Jesus. And which reward would you rather have? Which reward? The right answer is that one, but the reality is... For, a lot of us, it's it's the immediacy. And so we're so futile. We're going, man, I'd rather have this thing that I can hang on the wall because it looks nice and shiny. I can show it off to all my friends. Like, look what I got. But the reality is, as we check the motivation of our heart, what we should want is the rewards for the next life. Those rewards we can lay at the feet of Jesus as we bow before the King of Kings on his throne. It's easy, I think, for us to, to read these passages and we can put fun at the Jewish Pharisees for, of the first century. But what about our Christian Pharisaism? It's not so amusing. We've seen a lot of that in the church. We continue to see a lot of that in the church. 
And that we may not employ a, 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 a troop of trumpeters coming out and saying, oh, look what I'm doing to blow a fanfare each time we give to the church or to a charity. But, <coughs> excuse me. But a lot of times we, we kind of blow our own fanfare. Does it boost our ego? I mean, maybe you, you look for your name and uh, a list of someone who gave to some charity. I think about those GoFundMe or or sometimes there's like a meal train or a thing. Uh, we know someone who lost their wife unexpectedly recently and it was asking for money. And, you know, and I don't think there's anything wrong with doing this, but I think it's the motivation of your heart. You know, it's like, do you give a huge amount and then make sure your name is seen or you can do it anonymous? A lot of times, well, I'm a church planner, so we don't have a lot of money I don't feel like. So we're not giving big gifts, but even when we give, I'm like, you know, let's just give anonymous. I don't even want to know like, what it was we gave or that, it, like, that we do it just because we want people to see our name. But we all fall into this very same temptation. We all fall into this, this idea of wanting to draw attention to our, our giving or to be praised by men. You know, that's why supporters of Sojourn Church, those external, we're so thankful for you for tuning in this morning. And all of you should have received something, a, a card and a gift for us at the end of the year because we just appreciate all of you staying with us. So it wouldn't matter if you gave us $20 a month or $500 a month or if you gave something one time. We wanted every single person to receive something back because it was about the motivation of your heart, not the amount that your check was written out to. Now, I hope that we aren't the ones who get to heaven. I know all this is hypothetical, but work with me here. I hope we're not the ones who get to heaven and see the lines of people with their rewards. that They're going to lay before the feet of Jesus and then we're kind of sitting back in the corner with our arms crossed going, where, where's mine? And where, where do I get the line to get the reward to get in the line? And someone going, hey, uh, brother, sister, you already got yours. Like, Maybe where I already got mine. I want, I want to lay something for the feet of Jesus. Where did I get mine? You got yours in Portland with the praise of the people. You, you remember when you did that thing and you were just like, man, I want everyone to see me. I want to be up on stage. Well, you've already received yours. It's kind of like being that kid on Christmas who... Maybe weeks before, maybe they get an early gift, or maybe they found their gift. And you say, you know what? We're going to go ahead and give you your gift, and you're going to get to open your gift. But remember, Christmas is in three weeks, and so in three weeks, when your siblings are opening their gifts, just remember you already got your gift. And then Christmas morning comes, and that kid's looking around, going, "Where, where are my gifts? Like now, this I'm jealous. I mean, that was three weeks ago. I kind of forgot about that. And and as a parent, you go, "Look, son, remember we gave you your gifts three weeks ago. You've already received yours. So now everyone else is getting to enjoy their gifts as you wish you had yours." Now, sometimes we do good things and they're motivated by wrong reasons, but there's even grace for that. Jesus still gives us grace. I don't want you to hear this to, if you realize, man, my heart motivation has been wrong in all this. That's okay. There's, there's grace for that this morning. Jesus has grace for you, but Jesus offers a reward for those who are generous to those in need. He's generous to those who are poor. C.S. Lewis wisely wrote an essay entitled The Weight of Glory. He said, we must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of rewards. There is the reward of natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man a mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover and he is not a mercenary for desiring it. Similarly, we might say that a silver cup is not a very suitable reward for a schoolboy who works hard, whereas a scholarship at the university would be. C.S. Lewis concludes his argument by saying, the proper rewards are not simply tacked onto the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. And so in conclusion this morning, church, our giving as kingdom citizens is not to be done before men as we wait for their praise to begin. 
It's not to be done even for ourselves or our, our left hand clapping for our right hand for the generosity that we have. But it's to be done before God. It's to be done for the glory of God and nothing else. God who sees the sincerity of our hearts and rewards us based on that. And as Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. So here's how we're going to finish this morning. I want us to finish by simply asking two questions. Here's the first question. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you where it is in your life that you are living for the approval of others. This might be in your job. This might be in your family. This might be in your social life. This might be in how it is that you give to others. But ask the Holy Spirit this morning to show you where it is in your life that you are living for the approval of others. The second question. Ask the Holy Spirit to show it, show you where it is that you are to live as a blessing to those in need. Think about we have some opportunities as a church. We're doing a, a coat and blanket drive with the Portland Rescue Mission in the month of February. Uh, right now, Crystal Andriola is helping organize. She's, she's doing a Valentine's cards drive, or I don't know if that's the right word, but Valentine's cards for the residents of Fernhill Estates. We have houseless neighbors. I mean, just look around in our city, but even in our neighborhood that we can love and serve and help. And so the, the opportunities are abundant, but it doesn't mean you have to fulfill all those opportunities. Once again, it's all about motivation in your heart. You might right now go, oh man, I've got to do cards and a blanket. Now they don't want a coat and they want me to go feed somebody. Like I only have so much time. Remember, it's the motivation of your heart. And so ask the Holy Spirit to show you. Holy Spirit, where is it? The opportunities are abundant, but where is it you are calling me to live as a blessing to those in need? And then as a church, we can come together and hopefully do some of those things together. It doesn't always have to be together, but there's many opportunities that we can do together as a church to bless those in our community. And as we, we ask God to inspect our hearts, to reveal what we're living for the approval of others, but then ask him where we can purely be motivated in heart for his glory and his glory alone. And so to that end, church, let me pray for us, and then we'll finish our time together. Heavenly Father, we give because you first gave to us. And we want that to be the motivation of our heart. God, we don't give to receive salvation. We don't give for the approval of man. We don't give to receive some plaque or some praise, but God, we give for your glory and your glory alone. But we repent this morning for the times that we don't give for those reasons. We repent for when we seek the praise of others. We repent when we seek a temporary reward, an immediate reward, God. We repent of those things. God, we repent when we act like the Pharisees and the hypocrites. God, inspect our hearts this morning. God, allow us to have motives that are pure for the reasons that we give. God, the, the, the needs are abundant in our city. The needs are abundant in our community. And God, we ask at Sojourn as, as a small church that you would guide and direct our hearts as a community to where it is that we should be giving. God, we don't feel like we can do everything, but God, we know you've called us to give. And so we don't want to allow excuses and whataboutisms to cause us to inactivity, but God, we want to be active in responding. And so God, if it's the houseless in our community, if those who slip, sleep under the bridges, God, if it's children at school in need of school supplies, if it's the 
people who are in need of shelter at the Portland Rescue Mission or in blankets or coats or cards at Fernhill States. God, we just ask that you would guide and direct our steps, but that you would guide us to activity, not inactivity. It's by your power and it's for your glory and your glory alone, Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen, church. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.